This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. On the morning of Thursday, July 7th, 2011, Maureen Adamson made her way to work. It was a pleasant summer morning in the city of St. John, New Brunswick. Maureen, like so many fellow Canadians, made a pit stop at Tim Hortons to pick up coffee for the office staff. As she pulled up to Far End Corporation at 52 Canterbury Street around 8.45 a.m., she noticed the front door was unlocked. This was not entirely unusual, as occasionally people arrived before she did. Maureen made her way up to the second-floor office with a tray of coffees in hand. It was only when Maureen saw her boss's office door slightly open that she began to feel uneasy. This door was always completely closed when she arrived. Maureen sat the tray of coffee down to have a closer look at the open door. Upon entering, Maureen was hit with a terrifically vile smell. It was then that she noticed the legs on the floor of the office. It was her boss, one of the most powerful men in the entire province. Richard Oland was lying face down in a pool of his own blood. This is the murder of Richard Oland, and this is True North True Crime. Hello and welcome to episode four of True North True Crime. We are, of course, your hosts, and we want to start off this episode by thanking you so much for sharing and liking and giving us feedback on the Jordan Holling episode, which was our previous episode to this one. We've received some great feedback from the family as well, and they thanked us for our detail as well as the compassion that we had in that episode. And we really think that we brought Jordan back into the conversation again, so we just want to thank you very much for that. And thank you to everyone who has liked, shared, and rated the podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts. It allows us to keep telling Canadian true crime stories, and it means the world to us. Yeah, and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at TNTCPod and also at Twitter at the same handle, TNTCPod. So tonight we are going to be covering the gruesome murder of Richard Oland. Our case takes place in the city of St. John, New Brunswick. Located on the east coast of Canada, New Brunswick is one of the four Atlantic provinces. Being relatively close to Europe, New Brunswick was among the first places in North America to be explored and settled by the Europeans. The city of St. John is the oldest incorporated city in Canada, established in 1785. St. John is a major port town, the third largest in Canada. However, shipbuilding, fishing, and shipping are no longer major players in St. John's economy. Nowadays, heavy industry reigns supreme. Yeah, and the city of St. John actually has a population of only about 70,000 people because New Brunswick is actually a very small province. And and uh, for our uh, listeners outside of Canada, it is the only officially bilingual province in our country. Really? Yeah. Quebec isn't? No, Quebec is just French. Wow, I didn't know that. Anyway, so capitalists... Casey Irving and his family built unfettered industrial conglomerate in the city by buying up mills, 
shipyards, media outlets, and other industrial infrastructure during the 20th century and still continue to this day. The Irving family is Canada's eighth richest family with a net worth of around $8 billion. Today, Irving dominates the city and the province with stakes in oil, forestry, shipbuilding, media, and transportation. Irving companies remain dominant employers in the region with America's first deepwater oil terminal, a pulp mill, and a paper mill, and a tissue paper plant. Yeah, I actually lived in St. John for a period of time, and Irving just owns that town. It's just, yeah, it's everywhere. I, 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 so my, my, actually, my family, um, my mother's side of the family is all from New Brunswick, and I used to go to New Brunswick all the time growing up as a kid. And I have very fond memories of going to, and it was like they used to have diners in the gas station. Like, yeah. Irving is a big gas station there. And they had these old diners, and I still remember having the best ham sandwich of my life. At an Irving gas station diner, yeah. (laughs) It was so good. When you you get hired at Irving, you get taken to a warehouse, and um, that's where you get your uniform because they have so many different divisions. And so they guide you. Like, oh, are you working for the oil rig or are you working for the gas station? They guide you, and then you go pick your uniform. That's crazy. So uh, the Irving family is not St. John's only prolific family. The Olin family also has a very impressive empire. Yeah, that's true. Um, So tonight's episode is about Richard Oland. And the thing about Canada is if you want to be rich in Canada, you need to invest in beer. So (laughs) who is Richard Oland? Well, 69-year-old Richard Oland was one of uh, two sons born to Philip and Mary Oland. Philip was the chairman and CEO of Moosehead Brewery, uh, Canada's oldest independent brewery. It goes without saying that Richard and his brother Derek were born into a rich and notable family. Some might say they were born with silver spoons in their mouths. The Olins are considered old money, claiming some of Canada's highest incomes per capita. The brothers were both being groomed to take over Moosehead Brewing Company in their father's place. And by 1980, Richard and Derek were in huge competition to be their father's successor. Ultimately, Philip, the father would choose Derek over his brother Richard, which reportedly drove a wedge between the siblings. Richard would go on to found trucking companies and an investment firm. He also headed numerous charities and helped bring the Canada Games to St. John in 1985. And now earlier, we mentioned the Irving family and the Olin family sort of in the same, as the same ilk, but it's important to uh, sort of like separate the two because the Irving family is worth billions, uh, whereas the Olin family, uh, Richard Olin, is only worth $37 million. Only. Only $37 million. Yeah. So he's wealthy, but not Irving wealthy. Not like the 1% of the world wealthy? Yeah. Right. Um, but Moosehead Brewing. Yeah, they do about $236 million a year in sales at, at Moosehead. So that means... So, yeah, I mean, the Olin family is still making... I don't. They might be worth... Billions, yeah, but like it, overall, but quick Google searches don't tell you that, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so now that we've gotten to know a little bit about our victim in this case, let's get into the fateful day that Richard would be murdered. It was July 6th, 2011. Richard had a busy day at work ahead of him with a meeting scheduled for 10 a.m. with representatives of an insurance company, the purpose of which was to consider extending his life insurance policy. Richard would arrive at his office shortly after 10 a.m. and would have the meeting with the insurance representatives where they would reportedly discuss matters of his estate. According to Richard's secretary, Maureen, he spent the majority of the rest of the day in his office. 
Richard texted his mistress, Diane, at 12.01 p.m., advising her of possible times they could go on a trip to Maine they had planned together. Shortly before 2 p.m., Diane sent him a text of her available dates to go on that planned trip to Maine, but never received a reply from Richard. Meanwhile, Richard's son, Dennis, who's 43 and a financial advisor, is at work as well, and I think he works at CIBC. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he planned to head over to his father's office to discuss some family genealogy he had been working on. Now, we're about to get into some detail about what Dennis was seen wearing that day, and try to remember this as it's a huge factor in the case. The police had viewed video footage from the building that Dennis worked at, and it revealed that on July 6th, At 10.32 a.m., Dennis Oland is seen entering wearing a dark brown blazer, collared shirt, and khaki pants. At 5.08 p.m., he is seen leaving Brunswick House, which is the building, wearing a brown sports jacket and khaki pants, and carrying what appeared to be some books. So at approximately 5.30, Richard's friend and employee, Bob McFadden, recalls leaving their office building and briefly speaking with Maureen Adamson's, you'll remember her as the secretary that we introduced in the introduction, um, her husband, Bill, outside the front of the office building. After Bob walked away from his conversation with Bill, Bill witnessed a male go into the office building where Richard was working at approximately 5.35 p.m. He did not have an opportunity to see the person's face, but he did notice that the person was wearing a dark brown uh, sports coat, light-colored khaki pants, and he was carrying a red bag, like a similar to an environmentally friendly shopping bag. The bag was not empty, but did not appear to be overly full or heavy. Maureen Adamson was also able to identify this man entering Richard's office as Richard's son, Dennis Oland. She recalls Dennis arriving around 5.15 p.m., and she herself left the office between 5.30 and 5.45. When she left, Richard and Dennis were the only persons in the office, and they were working together on that genealogy project. This is the last time she saw her employer alive. So as you already heard in the intro, Maureen Adamson, Richard's secretary, arrived back at the office on the morning of July 7, 2011, at around 8.45 a.m., She would arrive to find some things that were out of place. The ground-level door was unlocked, which she found unusual as the door is usually locked at that time in the morning. As she made her way up to the second-floor office, the door at the top of the stairs was ajar. She recalled that this door was always closed and locked. Now, we are about to get into a graphic description of the crime scene, so if you would like to skip forward roughly uh, two or three minutes, now would be a good time. Maureen found her boss, Richard, face down in a pool of his own blood in his office. When the police arrived, they would observe the victim lying on his stomach, his head turned to the left on the floor in his office. Richard's lower body from his hips to his feet were positioned under his desk. Severe injuries to the head were clearly visible, as well as a lot of blood around his head, which had already coagulated and dried to the floor. Richard's car keys, a backpack, and papers were scattered beside him. His wallet was in his front pants pocket. The police would ask Maureen if anything seemed to be missing or out of place in the office, and the one thing she found odd was that Richard's iPhone 4 was missing. Her boss would always have his phone on him. The pathologist in the case would find the following. 
Richard had suffered 43 injuries to his body, 36 of which were to the top, sides, and rear of the skull. Six were defensive-type wounds on his hands and right wrist. The pathologist noted two different types of wounds to the skull. The first type was created by a circular object approximately three centimeters in diameter, containing what appeared to be a knurled pattern. This was consistent with being created by a hammer or some other similar circular type object. The second type of wound to the skull was an incised type wound and could have been created by a thin, sharp object that was approximately six centimeters in length, which lacerated the scalp and cut into the skull. Some of the injuries were indicative of a large amount of force, having been applied given the fracturing of the skull and penetration into the brain cavity. The nature, type, and extent of the wounds were such that considerable blood spattering would have been expected when the blows were administered. No weapons were ever discovered at the scene of the crime. Police gathered from the evidence at the scene as well as the autopsy that Richard Olin had been brutally assaulted, most likely with a weapon with two different surfaces or two different weapons. He had been bludgeoned to death. The sheer number and severity of the injuries inflicted the vast majority of which targeted the head, led them to believe that whoever did this was in a state of rage. According to police, the least likely motivation painted by the scene would be a random act of violence, for example, like a a robbery or a theft for profit. Given that the victim's wallet was still in his pants, uh, his car keys were beside him, there was nothing missing except his iPhone. And I do want to say his Rolex was still on his wrist. And that was like a an Oland Rolex. Like, yeah. that wasn't just a low-line Rolex. This was like a nice Rolex. You know, if that guy's wearing a $65,000 Rolex, you know, St. John is not the richest of towns. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, if it was a robbery, they would have gone for his Rolex. Or even just like a random killing. They'd see the Rolex and be like, bonus. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there was also no damage to the office at all. So police were pretty confident that the attacker or attackers were not strangers to Richard Olin. Another takeaway from the homicide scene is that the attacker or attackers would have most probably been covered in blood splatter. So naturally, the first person people suspected was the last person Richard was known to be seen with, his son Dennis. It should be noted that Dennis describes his relationship with his father as strained. The two never really got along, and Dennis had always tried to gain the respect of his father, but had never been able to live up to his standards. Also, Dennis Oland was financially beholden to his father. A few years prior to his father's murder, Dennis was going through a pretty bitter divorce, and it became clear that he was going to lose his house. This house had been in the family for decades. It was considered the ancestral family home. The property itself is almost three hectares in size and includes a large house, a large garage, several small outbuildings, horse stables, a large pasture horse riding ring, and a forest section. Wow, just an average average home, huh? Yep, just your average uh, middle class home. He said that his father was not going to allow this to happen and he bankrolled the divorce. His father purchased the home from him, and as a result, he was required to pay his father the interest of $1,600 a month as part of his repayment plan. Richard also paid $85,000 in legal fees for Dennis's divorce and was expected to repay his father that money along with a $500,000 to $600,000 
mortgage. So on the night of the murder, Dennis Olin told the police that he left his father's office at 6.30 p.m. And he went to his own home in Rothsay, which is sort of like uh, the rich, bougie enclave of St. John. It's about 15 minutes outside of St. John. And that when he left his father's office, his father was alone. Now, Diane, Richard's mistress, and we'll get into more about her in a bit, told the police that her and Richard kept in close contact with each other via phone and text, and she would call Richard every day around 6.30, and that he would always answer. When she called that evening around 6.35, there was no answer. She waited until 6.44 and texted him, receiving no response. She would call again at 6.46, and the phone would go straight to voicemail. She also called the office with no response. She continued to call and text his iPhone numerous times thereafter without receiving any responses. Now, a very interesting piece of evidence is that when Diane was calling Richard's phone that evening, it was pinging off of a different cell tower than it usually would if Richard was at his office. The ping from the phone call at 644 was received by a cellular tower located at the Riverside Country Club in Rothsay. Roger's communication also confirmed that, in fact, the call did ping off of that tower, which means that the iPhone was inside the radius of the tower, a radius of approximately 0.5 kilometers west, approximately 4 kilometers north, and approximately 5 to 6 kilometers east. So meaning it's incredibly close in any direction to that tower. Yeah. The police concluded that the last known address for Richard Olin's iPhone was near Roger's communication tower in Rothsay at 6.44 p.m. on July 6th. The police also concluded from what they were told by Rogers that after the incoming communication to the iPhone pinged off the tower, beginning at 6.46 p.m., the phone received 22 additional calls or text messages that came up with a roaming error. These roaming errors mean that the phone is no longer connecting with their network and they are unable to determine its whereabouts. So somebody may have turned off the network settings in the phone's actual settings or something like that. Those calls, which came up as roaming error, ended on July 7th, so the next day at 9.51 p.m. So Lisa Oland, Dennis's wife, remembers the evening like this. She was at their home in Rothsay. She was not feeling well, so she had laid down, and she told the police that her husband arrived around 7.30 p.m. She did not see him when he arrived because he went straight upstairs and got changed. Weird. They had a conversation as to where he was after work. He told her that he met with his father at his father's office and that they had talked about family history. He told her the meeting was really nice. Dennis and Lisa Olin then went out to Kennebecasis Drugs to get her some medication. They also went to Cochrane Market, and they returned home, watched television for a bit, and at 11.30 p.m., they both went to bed. So on the evening of July 6th, two people were working in the print shop, which is located below Richard's office, and they heard uh, a shuffling and sounds coming from upstairs that lasted about 15 to 20 minutes. The witnesses told the police that around 8-ish, he heard six to seven exceptionally loud, quick, thumping, pounding sounds coming from the second floor and described it as being similar to the banging on a wall. 
Now, again, Dennis Olin told the police that he left his father's office around 6.30, and these noises were allegedly heard around 8 o'clock. So it turns out that Dennis didn't go straight home at 6.30. Uh, on his way home, he made a quick stop at the Renforth Wharf in Rothsay, where uh, he hoped he could bump into his kids who were swimming and kayaking there. Uh, they were not there, so then he went home. So this is weird. I feel like, and we'll get into this way more later, but I, I personally think that he had zero intention of seeing his kids here and that this is where he would have disposed of either a murder weapon or his father's iPhone, which would, uh, you know, explain why Richard's phone was pinging off of a cell tower very close to this wharf. At the exact same time that it would have taken him to get to the wharf, which is about 14, 15 minutes away. Yeah. So again, you'll recall that the incoming calls that Richard's cell phone was receiving at 644 and 646 before the roaming error started were pinging off the cell tower in Rothsay. And guess how far Renforth Wharf is from uh, 52 Canterbury Street? It's a 12-minute drive. Meaning if Dennis left at 630, he would be exactly at the wharf checking on his kids. When those calls came in. Yeah, he would have disconnected the phone from the Rogers network and maybe just dumped it into the river. Mm -hmm. So that all being said, we're not the only people who think that maybe he threw the phone in the river because on July 9th, the police had divers search the waters off of Renforth Wharf in Rothsay for Richard Olin's iPhone and any other evidence that they might have found. And guess what? Nothing was found. Yeah, and that was only three days after Richard's murder, so... Either it was never dumped there, the uh, current in the in that river is so strong that it was carried away, or it got buried by silt and mud. We'll never know. So in Dennis's words, his evening played out like the following. After he returned home, he and his wife went to the drugstore and Cochrane's Market, and then back home and had dinner. They watched a movie, but not the whole thing. At some point, he went out to the Irving to get some milk. He did a little gardening, and around 9 p.m. put the hens he keeps on the property away for the night. He then went to bed shortly after 11 p.m. When asked by the police what his day on July 6 was like, he said that, until I went over to his, Richard Olin's office, it was a very typical day. During the interview with Dennis Oland on July 7th, the police asked him what he had been wearing when he had gone to his father's office the day before. He told the police he was wearing the same pants and shoes he was then wearing in the police interview, which were khaki dress pants and dark brown dress shoes. He said he also had been wearing a blue and white collared dress shirt with a navy blazer. Now, if you remember the description of Dennis on the CCTV footage as well as by the eyewitness account of him, he was wearing a brown blazer. Now, we have to get into this blazer because it was a massive piece of evidence in this case. Now, not only do we have Dennis appearing to attempt to lie to police about which blazer he had been wearing to his father's office that evening, he took that brown blazer to a dry cleaner on the morning of July 8th, which, as you'll recall, was two days after his father's murder, and the day after he was brought in for questioning. Yeah, the- that's kind of weird, hey? Like, <laughs> I, I don't think I would be doing my dry cleaning two days after my dad died. Yeah, and there's, I didn't put this in the script because I didn't really think it was super important, but there is reports that it was actually 
Lisa who had taken the dry cleaning in. And right. and maybe she just took this blazer in because she knew that they were going to have a funeral coming up. Yeah, but he'd wear a black suit to a funeral. I don't think he'd I wear know. a sports coat. And he did wear a black uh, blazer to the funeral. I have photos of him, which I will put in our uh, website, which is truenorthtruecrime.podbean.com. Mm-hmm. So I'll put that in there. It's been noted by the dry cleaner that they didn't notice any obvious stains on his jacket. However, again, I don't personally think that that does much for his innocence in my mind. He had an entire evening and night to run it through the wash at home or attempt to get any obvious stains out of the jacket before he took it to the dry cleaner. He had a ton of time here. It's not like he was bringing it straight from the murder scene to the dry cleaner. This brown blazer was seized by the police a week after the murder with the dry cleaner tag still attached. The police sent the blazer as well as the navy blazer... The pants Dennis was seen wearing that night and his dress shoes in for laboratory testing. Nearly a month later, those test results would come back. The brown blazer had four small bloodstains on it, two on the right sleeve, one on the upper left chest, and one on the back in the middle near the hem. All four were three millimeters or less in size. These bloodstains would also match the DNA profile of his father, Richard Oland. So, mic drop. Slam dunk case, right? Not so fast. Let's take a break first, and then we'll get into the salacious affair we spoke of earlier. And we are back. Okay, so there was an affair going on, um, and the woman involved in the affair was Diane Sedlicek. Uh, She was involved in a romantic extramarital affair with Richard Olin for about eight years. The relationship was known to some outside as well as inside the family. Now, Richard's wife, Constance Olin, said that it wouldn't be uncommon for her husband to not come home at night. Dennis did seem to take issues with his father's relationship with Diane. Speaking to members of the family about it as well as his father's close friends, hoping that he could talk his father into maybe, like, keeping it on the DL or not flaunting it so much. Dennis would go on to describe his father's relationship with Diane as a family concern and that he was very unhappy about it. Diane also had some pretty choice things to say about Dennis. She would state that Richard would often complain to her that Dennis had no work ethic. Diane also said that Dennis was babied by his mother and that he wasn't making much money as a financial analyst, that Dennis had recently done a big renovation to his house, as well as took a vacation trip to Europe. Dennis was spending a lot of money recently. She also mentioned that Dennis was, quote, under a lot of financial constraint, and that Richard would never give Dennis money if he asked for it. She knew that Dennis had gone to his father for money multiple times, and that he had, quote, jumped up and down and screamed and cried for it. End quote. She would go on to state, Dennis is a wild kid. He just loses it. Now we should point out that Diane doesn't make a great suspect for Richard's murder. I know that when there's a mistress or an affair brought up, some people automatically suspect that person. But she was home all evening with her 87-year-old husband, Jerry, And she actually passed a polygraph test as well regarding Richard's murder. 
Diane was also frantically texting and calling Richard, his friends, and his secretary Maureen after she couldn't get a hold of her lover all night. Diane also sent a pretty spicy text message when Richard's phone began going straight to voicemail. Quote, I have a lot of men who would love to be with me. Five exclamation marks. Answer the damn phone. I will call at your house. End quote. However, the next morning, the tone of her messages changed when she still couldn't reach him. She was texting, calling, and praying, she says. After a hair appointment in Uptown St. John that morning, she walked toward Richard's office and saw uniformed police officers outside. She texted again, asking why police were there. Quote, I'm trying to reach everyone, she said, including Olin's secretary Maureen Adamson and his business associate Robert McFadden. Quote, what has happened? Please, I love you. God be with you, my love. Praying, praying, was a text message that she had sent Robert. Then she saw Richard's car being towed away. Quote, I knew something horrible had happened. I didn't know what. Sedlicek said it was later that day when she found out Oland was dead. She doesn't recall who it was that told her. So, we have a son and a mistress that clearly aren't fans of each other, and now we know key pieces of information regarding Dennis. He didn't get along with his father. He owed him an insurmountable amount of money, and paying it back wouldn't allow him to live the lavish lifestyle he was used to. And he resented his father for the affair he was having. So on November 12, 2013, two years after Richard's murder, Dennis Olin was arrested for second-degree murder at a car wash. Apparently, the police had been driving around looking for his car, and then they spotted it at a car wash. Yeah, and they just decided, this is the best time, so let's... This is uh, the let's best see. time to arrest a millionaire Yeah, is at a car wash. Yeah. So Dennis would enter a plea of not guilty. And just six days later, on November 18th, 2013, Justice Hugh McClellan granted Dennis bail on a $50,000 surety, paid by Dennis's uncle, Richard's brother, Derek Oland the executive chairman of Moosehead Breweries. So uh, they set a the bail for a second-degree murder charge at $50,000? Yeah, at $50,000, a $50,000 surety. For it's, a known millionaire. Who could fly anywhere in the world at any time. So here's the deal, though. Dennis was ordered to surrender his passport and advise the St. John police if he planned to travel outside the province meaning he could still travel within Canada if he wished. Okay. So Dennis Olin spent the next two years leading up to his murder trial as a free man. Finally, on September 16, 2015, so four years after uh, the murder, Dennis's trial would begin. This trial would actually be the longest in the province of New Brunswick's history, totaling 65 days. During the trial, the jury would hear the description of the murder weapon as a hammer-type instrument, as Richard's injuries were a mix of blunt force and sharp force trauma. They would also hear that no DNA matching Dennis would be found on Richard Olin or anywhere at the crime scene. It would also be revealed by the blood spatter analyst that police did not contact him until four days after the murder and that blood had dried by then and was beginning to flake away from the floor. <laughs> this is just the first mention of many mistakes made by St. John police, and we'll get more into their complete mishandling of this case later. Dennis Olin testifies in his own defense. Asked by defense lawyer Gary Miller if he killed his father, 
Olin replies, no, no, I did not. During this entire case, Dennis denied any involvement in his father's murder and still does to this day. Dennis testifies he made a mistake when he told police that he was wearing a navy blazer at the time he saw his father. He later chokes back tears and wipes his eyes while telling the courtroom he misses his father. When Dennis was originally caught lying to the police about which blazer he was wearing when he went to visit his father, he would use the excuse that it was a hard day and that it was an innocent mistake. Now, the Crown's main arguments for the motive really centered around Dennis's strained financial relationship with his father, as well as Dennis's financial situation. The Crown contends Oland was, quote, on the edge financially. His $163,000 line of credit and $27,000 limit credit card both maxed out. He had received $16,000 advance on his pay and was overspending by about $14,000 a month. And that monthly interest payment he was supposed to be paying his dad of uh, about $1,600, it bounced the day before Richard was killed. The prosecution's case really hinged on the infamous brown blazer and the three spots of Richard's blood that would be found on it. However, the defense would have a reasonable explanation for the blood. And I say reasonable lightly here. The defense contends the minuscule blood stains were the result of an innocent transfer. Richard's secretary, Maureen Adamson, would reveal to the jury that Richard Olin had a scalp condition. She said she occasionally noticed little cuts on his head that would sometimes bleed. Olin was hard of hearing and would sometimes lean in when he spoke to people. He tended to put his hands on people when he spoke to them as well. So the defense is suggesting that the blood from his scalp could have gotten onto his hands and transferred onto Dennis's blazer. Forensic testing of the shirt, pants, and shoes police believe Dennis Olin was wearing when he met with his father did not detect any blood. And this was like a very, very bloody crime scene. Yeah. So tests on that reusable grocery bag that he reportedly had with him that night, the Blackberry he used after he left the office, and the car he drove home in also came back negative for blood. The court had been told the jacket, which was dry cleaned in the days following the murder, is the only article of Dennis Olin's clothing found to have traces of his father's blood and DNA on it. Which I also find slightly amusing because if he had this scalp condition that would be bleeding all the time and he was constantly touching people, wouldn't he have traces of his dad's blood on other clothes or just the blazer he happened to wear on the night that his dad was brutally murdered? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting defense and it does make sense and they do describe it as minuscule amounts of blood. No, so, I know. Like with it, just, there was 360 degrees batter mm-hmm. around that room. I know. It's a tough one. This case drives me nuts. So, during their search of Olin's house, police seized clothing, shoes, bedding, and items such as bathroom wastebaskets. But the only bloodstains connected to Richard Olin were those found on the brown jacket. Olin's defense team has suggested that the lack of blood on items belonging to their client, including his car, cell phone, and most of his clothes, points to his innocence. Yeah, that's another thing. Like, if he had gotten into his car right after the murder, why would there be nothing in his car? I mean, unless he brought a change of clothes in that red grocery bag? I don't know. On December 14th, 2015, Crown and Defense would present their closing arguments. 
The defense says the jury should reach a verdict of not guilty based on Olin's testimony and the circumstantial evidence presented by the Crown, whereas Crown says Olin was the last person to see his father alive and had opportunity to kill him. It would take the jury 30 hours of deliberation to reach their verdict, and on December 19, 2015, they would find Dennis Oland guilty of second-degree murder. He would end up sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 10 years. So that's it, right? Case closed. Not so fast, because on October 24, 2016, New Brunswick's appeal court overturns Oland's conviction and orders a new trial, arguing that the trial judge did not properly instruct jurors regarding one key piece of evidence. The brown blazer that Dennis Olin wore the night of the murder with the traces of blood matching his father. So, let's get into the appeal and what happens next after a quick break. Okay, so Dennis would actually be granted bail and released from prison the very next day on October 25th, 2016. Yeah, Dennis would get a brand new trial, this time without a jury. Uh, In Canada, you actually can petition to have that choice. You can have a jury trial or a judge-only trial. Mm -hmm. And he believed that this would give him a much better chance of a not guilty verdict. And Dennis believed this because... The process of finding a jury that was not already incredibly biased on this case was, in his mind, and I mean, I guess in my mind as well, impossible. Yeah, I mean, New Brunswick is a tiny province. St. John is a small city. Yeah. And it was everywhere. It was all over social media for years. Yeah, it was the top headline forever. Yeah, and because this this particular trial has so much to do with facts, (laughs) um, his defense team believed that Juries make too many emotional decisions, whereas a judge would make a more um, uh, seasoned, uh, yeah, fact-based yeah. decision based on like just the justice system. So, unsurprisingly, Dennis would plead not guilty and said he wanted to clear his name. And he was supported by his entire family, who also believed that Dennis was innocent. That included Constance. Yeah, his mother. Uh, even, um, obviously, the uncle, Derek, Richard's brother. Who put up his money for bail. Yeah. So, again, the Crown Prosecution would double down on their points of bad relationship with Dad, financial trouble, uh, his father's affair. However, Dennis would now all of a sudden reveal that he had made a third trip to his father's on the evening his father was killed. Here's the transcript from the questioning. So why don't you be Dennis, and I will be the lawyer. Okay, so this is Dennis on the stand in mm-hmm. the trial. Yeah. Okay, all right. Did you tell police about going back to get the logbook? Unfortunately, no, I did not. Were you trying to lie to the police by omitting that? Not at all, no. Of all the details you could remember, you didn't tell the St. John Police Force about a third visit. That's right. I'm going to suggest to you, Mr. Oland that you didn't want them to know about a third visit. Oh, absolutely not. As I said before, it was the most difficult day in the world, and you don't know what's significant. You don't know what isn't. You're totally a mess. You do the best you can. I did the best I could. 
Mr. Oland, you didn't tell them about the third visit because that's when you went back to kill your father. Absolutely not. Okay, so Dennis's third trip to his father's office occurred right after he left from his office the second time when Dennis realized he left behind a logbook that he promised he would bring home to his family member that was visiting from Toronto. So all of these three trips happened between the hours of 5 p.m. and roughly 6.30. I would maybe even push that to 6.45-ish. They would also grill Dennis about his suspicious stop at the wharf after his father's office and before he made his way home to his sick wife. Again, we're going to read from a court transcript here. And again, I will be playing the lawyer. And I'll play Dennis. Why did you stop at the wharf? It's something that I do when I don't have my kids for the week, when they're with their mother. I was hoping that I might be able to see one or two of my kids that evening. Did you get rid of anything at the wharf? Did I get rid of anything? Yeah. No. Did you throw away any kind of tool or weapon? No. Then what did you do at the wharf? At the beginning of the wharf, I noticed some beer bottles. I picked those up, walked to the end of the wharf, and looked for my kids over the edge because there were kids in the water. I didn't see my kids. I believe I sat down for a minute, and then I got up and left. Mr. Oland, you knew your kids wouldn't be at the Renforth Wharf swimming that evening after 6.30 p.m. Oh, I disagree with you. This is a local hangout. At 5.05 p.m., you knew that Emily was at your ex-wife's. Yes. And you knew Henry wasn't home from New River. Yes. Hannah's kayaking was done? Yes. You knew your wife was sick and wanted you home, correct? Yes. But you decided to stop at the wharf. Yes. I'm going to suggest to you, sir, that you didn't visit the wharf that day to see your kids. I absolutely disagree with you. Okay, so a big part of the second trial, as well as the first trial, was uncovering some pretty significant police mishandling of the crime scene, the evidence, and just this case in general. Some examples of this are as follows. The St. John police officer who guarded the Richard Olin homicide scene after the discovery of the multimillionaire's body says in hindsight he probably would have done things differently. Constable Dwayne Squires, who had been with the force for about five years on July 7, 2011, acknowledged under cross-examination at Dennis Olin's murder retrial that about 19 officers, all senior to him, went in and out of the blood-spattered office. He said it was his first time guarding a homicide scene, and he wasn't given any specific instruction by any superior officer. He had not received any specific training on the topic and was unaware of how any of the protocols on the issue worked. There was also a back exit out of the office building that law enforcement failed to secure. And before they could test it for fingerprints or DNA or any type of evidence, the cops themselves contaminated this exit by using it as their way in and out of the building. Yikes. The defense used this to their advantage in the second trial, even going as far as reenacting how a perpetrator could easily use this more hidden back exit escape. However, possibly the most frustrating blunder by the police was the mishandling of their key piece of evidence, the brown blazer. Police were found to have pulled the blazer out of Dennis's closet with bare hands. I just want to add here that a senior officer was the one who pulled it out with his bare hands, 
And the officer under him who was with him at the time said, do you usually do that? And he said, no. So he was literally witnessed doing it and questioned about it at the time. Yeah. And these are, I mean, the thing is, these are cops who get, honestly, two murders a year in St. John. Mm -hmm. And every single time they know the person who did it within the first five minutes because... Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows each other. Yeah. So subsequently, the blazer was rolled up, placed in a paper bag about 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters in size, and put into police storage. When the jacket was forensically tested more than four months later, several bloodstains were detected. They were later matched to Richard Olin's DNA profile. The police were questioned by the defense lawyers. In retrospect, do you accept that raises the chances of stains transferring from one part of the jacket to another part? This was in reference to folding of the jacket and its lengthy storage in a small paper bag. So this is basically them saying there could have been a damp droplet of blood on one part of the jacket. And because the police rolled it up and placed it into that into that paper bag, that it could have transferred from one part of the jacket yeah. to another part of the jacket, thus making it look like more blood spatter. Yeah, it like was, it, yeah. it was on a lapel and then it was pressed into a, the a sleeve pocket. Yeah. Or, yeah. A paramedic that responded to the murder scene also came forward as not being asked by police for a statement for over a year after the crime was committed. It was also alleged that a police officer was asked by a senior officer to not reveal that he had entered the crime scene. So we've got in in fighting happening here with the yeah. police. So that never good. There was also a piece of paper towel located in the washroom next to Richard Olin's office that would end up testing positive for blood. When asked about this, a police officer revealed that other police officers had been using that washroom for the previous two days. Yeah, and it was also revealed that the police did not forensically test that washroom. Like, they didn't take the drain out or test the sink or anything like that to see if somebody had washed up before they, say, got in their car and drove to a wharf afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Going back to the ear witnesses that testified to hearing thumping noises in the office building, one of those men would change the time frame that he originally gave from 8-ish, and he pulled it forward to 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. So he originally said it was likely between 7.30 and 8 p.m. And now he's kind of saying he doesn't know and it was more likely towards 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Yeah, one of the guys is is pretty clear that it's 8 and the other guy all of a sudden switched his, his mm -hmm. testimony now that it's in the second trial, which yeah. is weird. This would put Dennis at the crime scene at the right time, whereas before... Dennis was not at the crime scene. In fact, he was caught on CCTV footage with his wife at a grocery store picking up stuff for dinner between 7.30 and 8. So he was not at his father's office when these thumping noises were originally heard. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because one of the articles I read was, could this smiling man have just killed his father? And it's a photo of Dennis smiling in the grocery store with his wife. Like, he just looks like a happy-go-lucky, like suburban dad that being said there's a photo of him smiling as he's leaving his dad's funeral so yeah I'll, po I'll post that on the website as well so everything on the table no jury the judge made his decision the following are his words i cannot accept outright the accused denial of guilt 
there was much to implicate Dennis in the crime, including bloodstains containing his father's DNA on the jacket he was wearing the day of the killing. He would go on to say, More than suspicion is needed to convict someone of murder. In short, I am not satisfied. The Crown has proved beyond a reasonable doubt that it was Dennis Oland who killed Richard Oland. And just like that, in his second trial, Dennis Oland was found not guilty and would be a free man. Dennis hugged his defense team as well as his family members before leaving the courtroom without speaking to any press. He received applause from supportive onlookers. So before we get into the aftermath, I guess you and I should probably (laughs) discuss our theories whether or not we think he's guilty or not guilty. So why don't you go ahead first? Okay, um, so we've been watching uh, a CBC-produced uh, miniseries or docu-series. Which uh, you guys should totally watch, and I will link it in the show notes. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, and I don't know. I just um, – I don't think Dennis Olin killed his father. Wow, okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who killed him. I just – in watching the documentary and seeing his demeanor, I don't really see a killer or – and I also don't really think he's much of a mastermind mm-hmm. because he comes across as kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to say simple, but like, I don't, he just. But kind of simple. He's kind of simple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to describe. He's soft spoken. He's, he's, he's intelligent, but he's, he just seems quite. Um, Gentle. Yeah. He would rather be working in his wood, wood shop with tools and fixing things. than it doesn't look like he wants to be like some high finance guy. Yeah. Um. I do not share your opinion, and this is why. So I agree with you that, you know, watching the CBC docuseries did kind of point me in the direction that I'm like, oh, this guy, I don't know, he doesn't seem mm-hmm. right. But that doesn't mean he couldn't have hired somebody to kill his father if he wanted to, you know, do it that way. And I don't think that that's a likely theory, but I'm just saying he could have hired somebody. It's not like he mm-hmm. didn't have the means. Um, but, but he didn't have the means. He didn't have any money. Well, I mean, I don't know. He could have taken more off of his credit card or whatever. Um, but for me, what, what gets me is why was Richard's phone in Rothsay? That's, that's the thing. That's the thing that, that, that makes me stop. But, but my big question is where's the blood? Like that blood scene or that crime scene was a blood scene. Yeah. And he and he the thing is like we see him on CCTV footage three times driving down Canterbury Street mm-hmm. and parking mm-hmm. so it means he went directly to his car mm-hmm. each each time he left the office but he was alone at the office so he could have disrobed put those those soiled clothes into that reusable grocery bag mm-hmm. and put on a different change of clothes. But a, a blazer and But a, they and tested that bag and there was no blood. Then there's no blood, exactly. And, ah! also, and also he was he uh, um Maureen saw him at five thirty and then he left by six thirty mm-hmm. and he's at the wharf by like six forty five or whatever. So like he would have had to have hung out with his dad, had a normal conversation about genealogy waited for Marine to leave, ha- flew into a violent rage, killed his dad for, what, 15, 20 minutes, gotten changed. I, I-, I don't know. And, and then, like, the go to a public place covered in blood if he didn't change. Exactly. And it was down, like, right downtown St. John. Like, there were still people around. And it was only, like, six-something. But then those two dudes in the print shop hear thumps around 8 o'clock 
And we didn't mention this in the script because I literally just found out about it last night when we were watching the docuseries. But there is on CCTV footage an Audi that pulls up into a parking lot near uh, the, the, the office at around 7.41 p.m. And this driver of the Audi was never located. The police never looked into it. And we'll never know who that was. Uh, but they were really close to the office building. And it looked like the man did walk in the direction of the office building. Yeah, and Richard had enemies. He was, uh, you know, he was a, a, a trucking and investment firm owner. You know, these he people He was also known to be a an dick. asshole. Yeah. He was not a, an easy man to get along with, as the family describes him. Um, but for me, there's just... There's too many uh, convenient things that point that point to Dennis for me to say absolutely he didn't do this. I do not believe that uh, this is so hard for me, but I don't believe that he necessarily should have been found guilty because there was so much room here for reasonable doubt and that is at the end of the day what you have to prove. Like you yeah, have and to- in Canada we have a very high threshold for proof for murder. Mm-hmm. And we should. Yeah. You know, we shouldn't have innocent or, you know, uh, people convicted on on really light evidence for something as high as murder. I agree. Okay, so let's go into a little bit about, you know, where everything lies now in 2020. Dennis Oland is still living in New Brunswick, and his name has come into the headlines once again this year. This time, it's another divorce and legal battle over property. The house. The house. Dennis Oland plans to sell the family home in Rothsay that was linked to money problems with his slain father, according to court documents filed by his estranged wife, Lisa. Lisa, Dennis's soon-to-be ex-wife, says Oland has moved out of their marital home on February 17th, and she announced March 23rd that they were separating. Dennis told Lisa that they have no money, and that everything they owned will be sold, including the home at 58 Gondola Point. This house, you'll recall, was the one that Richard shelled out a hefty sum of money to save and keep in the family during Dennis's first divorce. It is reported that Dennis has moved in with his mummy and has listed the home for sale. Lisa also alleges that Dennis has been removing things from their shared residence without her consent, She is seeking an interim order to prevent Oland from selling the home and the three adjacent properties to preserve her marital interest in the parcels of land. The total monetary value of the land, which is just over two hectares, is $732,800. She is also seeking a freezing of family assets. Just want to jut in here that I think it's laughable that two hectares of land is only worth $732,000. Yeah, that's classic New Brunswick pricing <laughs> right there. That's a that's a $42 million British Columbia home. Yeah. Lisa goes on to say that during their relationship, she has lost everything, including her income, property she held at the beginning of the marriage, and her investments. She also incurred more debt for the benefit of Dennis. Lisa has been unable to work for years because of the circumstances of the family and obviously the giant Court target on her and, back yeah. and the fact that she was allegedly married to a murderer. 
According to her income tax filing from 2017, Dennis's net worth was just $25,600. Huh, hey, we're doing better than Dennis nice. Oland. Nice. Yeah. Nice. These two are scheduled to appear in court in September, so uh, be ready for that. It's also worth mentioning that the Provincial Police Commission launched an investigation into the mishandling of the Oland police investigation by the St. John Police Force after the trial was completed. Deputy Chief Glenn McCloskey was also being investigated for his conduct. A report from March 2020 concludes that the New Brunswick Police Commission found that the St. John Police Force's efforts were, quote-unquote, satisfactory. Hmm. That's some satisfactory police work. Dennis Olin says true exoneration will only truly come when someone confesses or is arrested and convicted for killing his father. The St. John Police Force has no plans to reopen the case. The Olin family continues to offer a reward for any information on Richard Olin's slaying. So, did Dennis Olin get away with murder? We would love to know your thoughts. You can contact us on social media, on Instagram at TNTCPod, or on Twitter, also at TNTCPod, or hey, send us an email at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Yeah, and if you have a, an active missing person case or something in your area that you want us to cover, then please like shoot us an email and let us know, and let's see if we can help out, especially finding missing persons. Yes. So thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Tell your family and friends about the podcast if you enjoy it. And as always, stay safe out there. Stay safe, you guys.